welcome to Shark Brain, episode 14. On this cold November day in Los Angeles, relative, relatively cold, I'm Jake Newton, your host. Thank you for so much for clicking, for tuning in, for turning on, for downloading. All is appreciated. And of course, for reaching out via Facebook, all the other avenues that you guys have been doing to actually really pump the show, I really do appreciate it. We've got a lot of guests that are coming up. Today's guest, Ben Lee. I met Ben Lee actually about six years ago, if I'm doing my math right. Yeah. Huh? Five? Man. Uh, yeah, about five years ago, I uh, went on tour with him and Carrie Brothers and uh, the Khan Brothers and uh, and Kate Vogel. I was working the merch for all of them. You know, get out, see the country. I didn't have anything really going on with my record. It was uh, sort of in one of those turnstiles, so I thought we get to hang out with friends and met him there. He's such an incredible force, such a very, very positive person to be around, and I'm really lucky and glad that we had him in the studio. The conversation took a bit of a turn. It was very... Very, very heady. A lot headier than most of my conversations that I've had on this podcast. So strap in, get ready for it. It's a fun one. It's a doozy. It's, it goes gnarly into the depths of, uh, of life, liberty, the pursuit of, um, je ne sais quoi, to get a little international. And, uh, we talk about any number of things ranging from, uh, music as an, a language to him becoming interested and involved with dead midwifery. I think I'm saying that right. Am I saying that right? Anyway, this guy's got a great story just about his, uh, how he rose to prominence at such an early age and has had such a long time to actually figure out where he wants to go and what he wants to do. And is actually searching and looking for the deeper questions on the side of everything. I mean, many times when I bring in people, we talk about making it in music out of the business of music. But the original intent of this thing was not necessarily about how to make money making music. I mean, obviously, that is a huge part of everyone's life. It's on a lot of people's minds in Los Angeles, Seattle, New York, wherever you are, Nashville, trying to make money making music. It's a part of of the landscape of your mind constantly because we're just in such an ephemeral time, especially for music. You know, it's not like you can just get an advance from a record label more often than not. You're grinding it out like an independent contractor, like you're some sort of real estate agent. You never know when the next thing's going to come up. So, in that, I feel that my personal purview gets pulled away from the actual intent of why I started doing this. The reason behind why I wanted to express myself making music in the first place. There's a bit in this interview that gets really good talking about music as a language. And I really, it was so well articulated and so well done that I, it was, it was a very grateful moment that I had. And it stuck with me this entire week ever since the interview. So Ben, you're listening. Thank you so much for that, for coming over too. And, um, for playing with my dog, Banjo. He loved it. He missed you. He whimpered at the door. All right. Before we get into the interview, I want to start off with some uh, some business, some business. I'm playing at the Hotel Cafe, which is going to be the day after this initially airs. If you're listening to this later on in the week, you missed it. I'm sorry. But those of you who are listening to it on the day or the day after, Tuesday, the 26th of November is where I'm going to be there. I'm going to be trotting out a few new songs. I'm going to be risking it. I'm going to see how they do. One song doesn't have a bridge. And I'm going to leave it that way because I don't think it needs a bridge. What do you think of that? I'm not being lazy. I just don't think it needs a bridge. Why gild the lily, huh? Huh? I'm hardcore like that. Get into it. So that show's coming up. Going to be doing the Ho Hotel show that they do every year. Uh, that's a benefit for the LA Sparks uh, Toys for Tots. I think we we all go out and we 
shop for children's with the proceeds from the shows coming up. They are at the Hotel Cafe website along with ticket links to my show. Um, beyond that, I think that's going to be it for me for the rest of the year. I'm writing like crazy. I've been, uh, I've been going all over town and, and doing some co-writes with various different people, which is always so strange doing co-writes because I feel like when I'm writing alone, um, the idea comes and it, it, it's, it's reasonably, uh, reasonably quickly. You coax certain things out of your mind a lot faster when there's silence and a certain lack of, um, not necessarily other people's judgment, but the scrutiny, I guess, is the word that I'm looking at, uh, look, looking for, I should say. If you're able to open yourself up like you normally do on your own with other people, which is, you know, to say, to actually be yourself around others. I don't know if anybody else struggles with this. This is rhetorical. Of course, other people struggle with this, of being yourself. I don't know. Lately, I felt as though I'm just beginning to crack the edges of a truer self that I had never actually really connected with. And it's... It feels great. It's terrifying because uh, I don't know. Hey, what if I'm actually a jerk? Oh, no. Oh, no. What if I'm actually a self-serving prick who needs attention all the time? And is, and I'm having the moment where I'm going, well, so what? What if that happens? And 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 not knowing it is going to somehow make it better? So it's a very exciting, turbulent time for my own mind. You know, it's like moving out of the old house and into the new house. And the new house is, uh, is a little bit bigger, and, and, and memories have yet to be made. But the old house has got these familiar grooves in which I like to fall into. The shame spiral has got a nice rounded edge from my feet treading around it over and over and over again. The, uh, the fear of my own potential cyclone is, uh, is I know that I'm, I've mapped it well. So to leave it behind and to go into uh brash, unapologetic me seems a bit daunting, but I'm fine with it. I've taken my, my brand new brash, unapologetic self out here and there this week to be able to uh, to trot it about. Uh, went to, last night, William Fitzsimmons played, uh, caught up with him for a while. We're going to bring him on the podcast in January, so look for that. It's coming up. We're going to do a special way of doing it because he's, uh, he's latched to his Midwestern roots. Might have to go out and see him visit him on the farm he was wearing overalls yeah my buddy was wearing overalls i didn't mention anything about him because that's what friends do they they ignore certain glaringly obvious things that need not be mentioned anyway let's circle back to this interview with the one the only the jovial the spiritual the kind-hearted benley here on shark brain Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, basically, we should start off, ask a couple questions about uh, about your origin story, about where you came from, and uh, and how you got started in music. Mm-hmm. Are you going to ask them, or was that the asking? Yeah, that was them? The- <laughs> okay, that was it. Okay. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. You, so you're you're from Australia, obviously. Yes. From the accent, and yes. yeah. But uh, were you did you grow up in Bondi or just near? Yeah, yeah, North Bondi, mm-hmm. beginning of Dover Heights, right? It, it, yeah, I grew up in Sydney and um, sort of in a you know, working class, middle class Jewish community, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because here some people go, there's Jews in Australia and there <laughs> are Jews in Australia. Um, and so what, how did I get into music? That's what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, I got into music just, you know, Michael Jackson and the Pet Shop Boys and everything mm-hmm. on the radio. And I really, from very young, saw this 
position of being an artist slash performer standing on a stage singing to be very enticing to me. I think both at an ego level in mm-hmm. terms of there's no greater expression of the child singing and dancing for their family and wanting to get laughs and entertain mm-hmm. people than there is of seeing it, you know, extrapolated to yeah. be like 50,000 people in a stadium. Mm-hmm. So I think at that level, it was sort of intrigued to me, but also really to do with the expression of the innermost secret fantasy world and emotions and desires and fears and the way that a performer could portray that on stage Mm. and take the audience through that. It seemed really, from a very young age, I just found it courageous and Mm. admirable and exciting. And, you know, it was just a journey. I I listened to a lot of music and started little bands and Mm. learned piano and then learned guitar. and, And then really when I was about 13 or 12 or something and I saw Nirvana play in Sydney, I it was really like a light switch went off. I was like, I could start a band. Yeah. Like, it's that easy. It's just like three guys with instruments. There's no, um, there's no gatekeeper there. It's Mm -hmm. like, and and something about the way Nirvana performed, there was no backdrop. There was no, there was no production. Was this on a Nevermind tour? Yeah, it was just at the beginning. The album had just come out. Mm -hmm. So they'd already like, Smells Like Teen Spirit was already a big song, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't yet. You know, they were playing on a festival, but in a hall that held a few thousand people. Yeah. So, it wasn't like they'd become the band. They would become mm-hmm. a few months later. But there was just something about how raw it was and yet how much it was affecting people that something clicked. Because before that, everything that I'd seen on, in the radio and in the charts was like Guns N' Roses and yeah. all this stuff that had so much production mm-hmm. and um, artifice yeah. to it. So, really, from that, it was like at that moment, a light switched and since then has been the same same journey of this uh doing music kind mm-hmm. of thing and you had a lot of early successes that kind of led to the other things did you ever have a moment where it felt as though it was too much at the beginning or is it always just it felt within you as if this was just a mere extension of an extrapolation of what you wanted to be in the center of you well there was probably several experiences happening mm-hmm. at once i mean this was a time pretty much pre-internet Mm-hmm. And most of the interest in my music was in America. So I felt very detached from that. And it wasn't really until I toured and played Tramps in New York or mm-hmm. The Knitting Factory and there was like 500 people there that knew my songs that I actually understood the music had connected with people because <laughs> I wasn't Googling my name. I mm-hmm. didn't know anything about that. Um, so on one hand, it felt sort of a good introduction and also the community you know the artists that took me under their wing were like sonic youth and the beastie boys and these weren't artists that i toured with fugazi you know these weren't artists mm-hmm. that were intoxicated by glamour mm-hmm. and fame and so i didn't it didn't have that energy around it yeah um i always laugh when people can sometimes in interviews or something they'll compare my trajectory to something like Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus. <laughs> so, it's like, well, I was young, but yeah. firstly, the the heights of celebrity were not reached. But also, yeah. I was very um, insulated mm-hmm. by credible working artists. Yeah. And that really changes the atmosphere around the experience. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think I was emotionally mature enough to handle some of the basics 
of sharing art with the world in terms of yeah. the rejection and the criticism. And mm. I remember there was stuff like getting bad reviews that my label would be laughing about and they'd be almost like showing them showing them to each other and saying, ha, check this one out, mm. uh, reviews of my record. And mm-hmm. I'd sort of pretend to be laughing and mm. then I'd pretty much go home and cry. Yeah. Because, but I didn't, I didn't understand why I didn't have a thick enough skin, mm. but I was 14. Yeah, yeah you're not, you shouldn't be expected. <laughs> you're not meant to have developed yeah. those types of emotional calluses. You're not allowed point. to drive much exactly. less, like, like exactly. have the very depth of your tiny, tiny soul be laid out to the floor. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. And so there was being, quote unquote, precocious um, in a certain respect, which is kind of a term that gets a blanket statement thrown over people, just connected to whatever that part of, of yourself that was there and being able to having an expression for it um was there a lot of expectation for you to be more mature than your age yeah i think that came way before music though that was something in my family um yeah. i was a you know a, a very um, distant afterthought in terms of when my sister's one's 15 years one is 18 years older than me oh so wow. i grew up in a house of adults surprise yeah, yeah. and so it was a very uh I probably had a premature maturity in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's only when I got into my 30s that I started feeling the age that I'd always felt inside. (laughs) I I always felt like I was in my 30s. So I always looked forward to it. Uh And I got into my 30s, I was like, ah, I'm starting to feel natural. (laughs) Yeah, that's about the time that I met you is, I think, yeah, 31, 30. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, It's it's always surprising to me, especially with... uh, with growing up with parents who talk to you like you're an adult and then you kind of have to be thrown into your own, um, your own age group. I, I had a feeling at least when I was eight, I used to get knocked down, drag out fights with my eighth grade teacher because she was treating us like kids. Mm. <laughs> I laugh about it now because we were kids, we were kids. And now finally to be matched up with who I am, I, st- I now I feel like I'm, uh, I'm a kid now. It's a strange kind of, yeah. Well, you let yourself, I think that's the thing too, for me that, there were all these situations and different dynamics that led to me developing this sort of persona of mm-hmm. maturity. And, you know, pretty much I think you feel unsafe to some degree, which is why yeah. you create that. And so now that I actually am feeling kind of safe and secure in myself and surrounded by family and friends and loved ones, mm-hmm. I can relax yeah. and have a more playful attitude. I really felt like when I became a parent, it's interesting because the play that you have to be involved in with kids. Mm. Well, you don't have to, actually. A lot of parents just don't play with kids. Go over there. The invitation that is there to Mm -hmm. begin playing with your children, I think there's a reason why it's considered so challenging. And I think a lot of parents think they will want to play with their kids. Mm -hmm. And then when it actually comes, they're like, oh, they don't have the energy. They don't have the time. They're like, put the TV on. They want to go clean up the kitchen. You know, um, because it's very... um, it's very challenging to allow yourself to play yeah. when you haven't got a history of that. Absolutely. You know, when you've mm-hmm. kind of been the mature one mm-hmm. and then you start relaxing and as an adult, you start. So I've actually started playing, I think, both creatively, musically, physically, you know, the way I play with my kids. But mm-hmm. I think that has really crescendoed as I've come into my 30s. Yeah. My sense of experimentation and my courage around that. Yeah, it does seem though, especially in your work as it's as it's progressed along, that there is you have an ethos that you're you're putting into your music, not necessarily as a ham-handed like you know like listen, this is music with a message, everyone get like mm. gather around the radio, but that that there is this express need to be able to like to express an idea about maybe a our, our dystopian world and the utopia that you have in your mind, 
Are is that relaxing a little bit with uh, with kids, or is that? That's probably gotten stronger, actually. Really? I, mean, I wouldn't probably describe it that way. I, I would say that there has been this desire in me from when I was very young to enter reality. Yeah. Now, that has taken a lot of different forms. One of them could be, like you said, challenging hypocrisy within systems like mm. school. Another could be... Um, you know, exploring spirituality. Another could be talking to friends and trying to get to the bottom mm -hmm. of what's happening. And another could be as an artist trying to create experiences that are more grounded in fundamental reality than the consciousness with which we lead our everyday life, mm -hmm. as you were sort of pointing to. So that has never really changed for me. And that's sort of gotten stronger. And I think... And sometimes I felt a little guilty about that because I would see some people who take such pleasure in music for its own sake. Mm -hmm. uh, they just want to make music. They love music. They revel in it. But to me, there's almost a form of, uh, I don't know, I'm going to use the word idolatry in mm -hmm. that, in that music is a language and yeah. it's used to communicate something. Mm -hmm. And to worship the language on its own it doesn't seem to me to be incredibly potent. Mm -hmm. It's more like, let's use the language. Let's actually say something. Let's create an experience. So I've always seen music as a tool to make something happen, mm -hmm. to change the atmosphere in a room, rather than just sort of just the joy of making music on its own. Yeah, I understand that. I'm uh, in an effort to uh, expand my width and breadth I recently um, on on edx.org that's this uh, consortium of a whole bunch of different uh, universities mm. where they actually teach the courses that they teach at the universities for anybody that just wants to be edified huh. through the knowledge of it and uh, I, I I don't know whether it was misguided or was it was like ego or my natural curiosity but I took this uh, American poetry mm. from the Puritans in the 1600s and from this woman at Harvard but the entire time I'm I'm looking at it and and they're reading these poems and they're they're pouring over them and picking them apart and trying to find the meaning and trying to do that but it feels as though uh, they're missing the forest for the trees the entire time it's that that worshiping the language of poetry and the syntax and the the form of it but nobody's talking about the feeling mm. you know that that and I subsequently stopped thinking <laughs> because I had that moment where I realized, do I just want to say that I'm taking courses at Harvard or do right. I actually want to take it? So Well, it's a very interesting balance how we use the intuitive mind and how we use the analytical mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm not one of those people that thinks the ana analytical mind is useless mm -hmm. and we all just need to be living on pure intuition. I think we can be living intuitively and utilizing the tool of our mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think some analysis is a powerful tool, whether it's in music, say, you know, a good example would be when you're recording a song to understand the history of different tones and sounds mm. and to know that if you use one there, that particular keyboard, you're actually going to be communicating a whole lot of things based on the history of people's associations with that sound. Yeah. So if you don't know that, then you might get lucky and you might be communicating the thing that you want to be, but mm -hmm. more likely than not, you're going to be misusing the tool and you're going to miscommunicate the emotional integrity of the message. So yeah. 
So I think some of this balance is as an artist is pretty important. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a Bon Iver track and one of the latest is self titled one where there's this uh, Juno that comes in and I cannot tell you like those the people that I've listened to it with that are born like 1990 mm-hmm. and on and the people who were born like before that in the 80s the people who were born in the 80s have this immediate because it just comes right in super strong and everybody's thinking of in the heat of the night right. or any of these uh, television shows that they've watched and the, the kids from the 90s go I don't that sounds cool I have no context for it right. it's just it just sounds cool so you're right that's that's a very interesting I think an interesting point with the association is with and it. words are the same when we're, yeah. we're sitting here using words to talk to each other mm-hmm. and every word that I use you're interpreting through many associations you mm-hmm. have to every other time you've heard that word so mm-hmm. I have to be using my analytical mind and my intuitive mind in monitoring mm-hmm. through watching you and listening to you and he- watching your responses mm-hmm. am I actually using the right words to get my point across mm-hmm. because it's happens many times that the tools we use as artists are not as effective as we want them to be and i've I've gone through many years of before my craft got to a certain place mm-hmm. of pretty much never getting the response i intended really? even when it was successful mm-hmm. they would always feel like i didn't nail it like yeah. i didn't get i didn't get across what i was trying to get across and yeah. i could just tell i could mm-hmm. tell and then that did sort of shift at some point after about 10 years of doing it seriously, mm-hmm. like 10 years of making records and touring and mm-hmm. playing shows. And who were you touring with? And just to kind of get a, a background of that. When was that? Uh, like, like between 14 to... Uh, well, you know, I still went to school, but I did, mm-hmm. you know, shows with like Fugazi and Pavement and Sebado and uh, the Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth and all the indie bands and mm-hmm. alternative bands and John Spencer Blues Explosion mm-hmm. and Chibo Mato and... Um, Elliot Smith and Cat Power and all, you know. And then, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, I always toured a lot. But so, yeah, the, you know, it's, uh, it, it is interesting when things sort of tip and you feel you've got just some elemental mastery of mm-hmm. the tools. And yeah. then you can start being a little bit more effective in the way you, yeah. you know, get what you have to say. The 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks Something about. Something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. There's, it does seem like you need to get to a certain point, a threshold, and it's different for everybody, but there seems to be that uh, mitigating factor of a certain period of time where you're actually able to be unconscious about, um, about the language that you speak mm. and, the, and the intention that you have. Mm. Um, so that it's, it's just with any fear. I went skydiving for my 30th birthday wow. and it was, it was phenomenal. It was such an experience. Now I, it was, a, my wife surprised me. And so I was a little, I had that fight or flight response of going like, really, I do I have to do this. And then, but there is a surrender that you have to do once you've jumped out of the plane and there's nothing with, it's not within your control whatsoever. What you do, once you've surrendered to that, then the joy comes in. And I think that, yes, surrendering to a lot of those things. When you're playing and you've been playing for maybe an hour with a band and you're tense for whatever reason and something just sort of lifts, you know, for some reason, specific or otherwise, once you do that, the subconscious moves that you make that are just the the connections that you've made in your brain over and over and over again that are just, you know, going into a zombie response, so to speak, are they're greater than the sum of their parts. Mm. So it's, uh, I've, I've noticed that personally in, in my own just writing as well. You know, if, if, uh, I just do the, the brain dump, you know, um, and sometimes the most crazy stuff will come out at least. I don't know, but yeah. And, and, uh, I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite a difficult thing in the beginning because we perceive ourselves as having all kinds of options. Mm-hmm. So, 
you'll see people when they're thinking about what profession they should do, like, oh, should I go down this road or that road? And then the whole time you're going down your road, you're entertaining, but I could have been doing this and did I make the right choice? And we don't realize that all roads can be really successful. You know, there's a Mm. beautiful Alan Watts quote where I forget to exactly the words, but to paraphrase it, he says something to the effect of, find the thing you like doing and become an expert at it Mm -hmm. and someone will pay you then. (laughs) Just, you know, we don't Mm. realize that like all roads as unique and idiosyncratic as they are artistically can Mm. work. Yeah. You just got to get really good at it. And that's, I think that surrender is part of realizing, okay, I'm doing this road, Mm -hmm. you know, and at a certain point, Maybe it's an age thing or maybe it's to do with where you are in your life and are your friends still in college while you're not and mm-hmm. you're having guilt about that or something. Yeah. But at a certain point, you just go, okay, I've committed to this. I'm going to mm-hmm. really do this path and see what there is in it. Mm-hmm. And you never had any of those uh, – well, I'm sure everybody does, but uh, did you ever deal with an anxiety of one way or the other? Or, um, yeah. No, as far as being a musician? In- um, I didn't really have an anxiety – about being a musician, I just wanted to be a successful musician. Yeah. So it's like, in my mind, if you would have been able to say, here's the future, you're going to win 10 Grammys mm-hmm. and all this, you know, sell this many records. And uh, I would have been like, great, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. But it's that unknown yeah. that is part of the path that's yeah. so hard to tolerate. So I think I had anxiety about that. Um, I mean, I was lucky in that I've always, there's always seemed to be just one or two little kind of thumbs up coming from the universe along my path that uh-huh. have just kept me going. Um, or even just delays that have prevented me making mistakes. Uh-huh. Um, so while I had anxieties and there were times when the bank account has gotten very low, at the 11th hour comes a check. I mean, I uh-huh. don't know what to say. It's like there's no... The perseverance required on any path mm-hmm. is immense. I mean, you know, there's a... There's a lot of teachings about this, about the ordeals mm-hmm. of mastery in any field and in any, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still early days. I'm in my thirties. This is the path of artistry is it's a lifetime yeah. path, but you have to pass many ordeals yeah. and you have to suffer a lot. That's just how it goes. And yeah. if you can handle it and if you keep going and you don't let your heart close and you don't become bitter, mm-hmm. I think there's immense rewards in it. Oh, yeah. I've struggled completely with bitterness and comparison, compare contrast thing and, and putting myself on a vector of other people. The constant comparison between those two things has really hamstrung a lot of my work. I'm, mm. I mean, and of course I, I'll sit there and have that, you know, self-flagellation talk of where it's like three records in seven years that is not productive, blah, blah, mm. blah, whip, whip, whip. And of course I'm, I'm like a, a wounded dog whenever my creative mind comes out to play. It, it doesn't feel safe. Yeah. So I've been trying to foster. And that's one of the reasons why I started this too is to be able to, to learn from other people, to, gra- to grab the nuggets of knowledge that they have and to be able to use those to kind of relax my own self. And yeah, well. To- That's really interesting because I think one of the things you see in powerful people Mm -hmm. is the ability to self-correct. Yeah. And that anybody to get really good at something and become powerful at, I don't mean worldly power, though that might happen, Mm -hmm. but just to have that energy of kind of Mm -hmm. self-knowing, they have to have made many, many, many mistakes Mm -hmm. and many, many, many corrections. Mm Mm-hmm. And if we're in guilt and shame, it's like you, then you can't correct it. Yeah. Cause then you get stuck in feeling bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, let's take that example. We've all had that of I'm not as productive as I should be. Mm-hmm. At that moment, 
there's a fork in the road and one of them involves continuing to beat yourself up and feeling less than mm. and feeling like a bad person and the other is being more productive yeah <laughs> and <laughs> and i think you'll find in people that you admire there's usually been many of those forks and they've chosen to correct mm. because there is right and wrong internally for us you know i think mm-hmm. we do know when we have moved against our innermost heart mm-hmm. and our real path in a sense it does feel like you're out of phase yeah you're out of phase and you got to fix it mm-hmm. and at that point it's kind of not the time for whining mm-hmm. it's the time to fix it yeah and i think that is a very you see that in effective people mm-hmm. that is that is something that i have tried to beat into myself but probably me that's the wrong term to use <laughs> but, it, but it's true i i've I tried to, to instigate that within myself and and sometimes better sometimes worse you know I, I've, I've dealt with a lot of just generalized anxieties uh, that have kind of plagued me. And um, I'm going through therapy. I'm doing the whole thing, yeah, really yeah. trying the self-exploration and, uh, and getting to the bottom of it. And as a result, um, I've those moments when the, just the understanding, which I think is part of the seed of why I wanted to be a musician mm-hmm. and, and an artist is that I, to, to know and to be known is such a wonderful, beautiful relief from the unknown it's it's almost as if a veil has been lifted for a brief period of time. The shows that I've really loved to see have been uh, where there's a certain fragility and uh, a sense of uh, a sense of togetherness. Those two things, you know, whether or not I, you know, me subjugating something from myself to go towards the artist or the artist coming to me in my, you know, head and uh, and being able to to achieve those things are the moments that are kind of hallowed and they step outside of time almost mm-hmm. and, and you're a whole bunch of physiological stuff happens to you just in that sort of spiritual realm mm. so yeah i i i when when i was touring with you being your merch guy yeah yeah, yeah in, in 2008 when you'd go out into the crowd it was one of the first times that i saw you do it yeah. um you go out into the middle of the crowd and stand there um sometimes precarious tables yeah. or, or wherever, there was a moment where everybody, you'd, you'd been singing these songs all night and everybody, everybody loved them and, and had that, but there was that moment where you kind of said like, all right, let's not forget what, like, what you and me and the distance between each other is that we're in these physical bodies. At least that's what it felt like to me every moment, mm-hmm. every night that, that would happen. You, it's almost as if a reset button happened and everybody was like, oh my God, we're actually here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's the, I mean, the great, travesty of human nature is that we forget we're here (laughs) so if artists can do anything it's hopeful that they can Mm -hmm. remind us of that Mm -hmm. and i think you also touched on something really interesting which is the reason why we choose this path yeah and what i've come back to a lot is that this is just the arena within which i've chosen to learn my lessons Mm. like you could pick anything really. And if you stick it out, you'd bump up against the same insecurities Mm -hmm. and the same anxieties and the same desires. But in a sense, it's quite an appropriate place to study your relationship to validation and your relationship to intuition. And it's a good arena for it. But we get a little caught up in thinking, oh, you know, it would make me really happy if I got, if my career looked more like this. Mm -hmm. And we forget that, but that might not be the appropriate way for us to learn the lessons we have to learn. Yeah. And that this is really a process of learning. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing in our lives. And that a career is a wonderful place to practice 
being human.、Mm. But it's not. We don't want to get success just so we can forget about being human. Mm. Which is, it seems to be, why a lot of people chase it. Yeah. Oh, to yeah, to take out the highs and lows and to turn this great roller coaster into a tram. Yeah. Which is and how boring. I mean,、oh. I always said if I had been able to create my career the way I'd imagined it in my head,、mm. I would have picked an infinitely less interesting career.、Hmm. Like the career that has that the universe has planned for me and has had planned for me. Is way more fascinating than what I would have ever planned because I'd have picked a very safe first record comes out goes platinum、mm-hmm. and then just like steady run of、mm-hmm. arenas、uh-huh. for the rest of my life. <laughs>、uh-huh. <laughs> so you know it's um it's good to remember that we're here and this world is our teacher、mm-hmm. and that it's okay to be failing sometimes too because that's how you learn. Yeah, yeah, you were. You're in a very unique space in music history,、um, at least. Am I? <laughs> well, I guess we, we both. We, I should say we both are. But you you had success at such an early age, but you but it was in the time pre-internet or yeah, pre-explosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so being able to to see the world, not just a not. I mean, there's successes. They're talking about the the you were talking about the Beavers and the Miley Cyruses being young, but、um, not many. Kids that young hang around with Emakai. Right, just doesn't right. really. You know, yeah, I mean, my success was the equivalent of、mm-hmm. like being a blog buzz band. Yeah, now it was yeah, in the like, it was cool to like me,、mm-hmm. and I was in. Then it was magazines. Yeah, you know, I was in like the Face and Dazed and Confused、uh-huh. and Q and like the cool magazines,、mm-hmm. and that、yeah. was kind of the equivalent. Yeah, yeah. so you you spanned that. You were you hit that part, and you got to experience that world before, kind of a. Uh, not, not, I wouldn't. I don't want to say a, a disintegration because I, it feels like a lot of people, you know, the, the chicken littles about you know the music industry and all, everything's falling apart. We're all gonna die in obscurity alone because no one has record deals anymore. Uh, but uh, to go from there to this kind of egalitarian,、uh, you can do it yourself, but you also have to do it yourself.、Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a vibe for things.、Um, mm-hmm. When you when you think back on the way it was before. Um, at least with、uh, you know the powers that be being the gatekeepers for everything like that, and you think now where there's the the immediate connection to the point where a fan can actually put your Twitter handle on、mm-hmm. and say something directly to you, and it'll go to your phone.、Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? What do you think are the、uh, the positives and negatives of that current state that it is now、mm-hmm. in comparison to the one before? Well, the biggest positive is simply that that's what's happened. Yeah. And we have to look at it. There's no other way to look at it except that it's an opportunity. Yeah. If you look at it any other way, you become bitter. Yeah. So it's happened, and it has created opportunities、um, for us to become empowered in different ways.、Um, I agree. I think one of the maybe the difficulties is that if you were lucky enough to get a record deal. In the nineties, there were people who were helping you,、yeah. and that was a nice thing. <laughs> I mean, that's great, you、mm-hmm. know. And there was tour support and all these. Yeah. And essentially, it all came down to there was more money to be made in music.、Mm-hmm. I guess I'm not really partial to the idea that we, as an industry, are separate to the laws of business、mm-hmm. in any other industry. In that, if people don't want The thing we're selling, and don't want to pay for it, 
we can't whine about it. Yeah. We have to change, you know. And again, if you're not involved in the idolatry of thinking of, but this thing, this mm. thing is valuable. It's worth this much because that's what it was worth when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's so much uh, preconceptions and, mm-hmm. you know, of our own ideas that come into that. But if we if we let go of that and we just say, okay, I'm in a world, I'm in a society, mm-hmm. I have things I want to share, I have to work out how to get my message across, it, that's no different than it's ever been. I mean, the world's ever changing, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. just I, I guess I just, I don't look at it as such a drastic change. I just look at it as like, it's always meant to be changing. Yeah. It does seem like uh, whenever you hear that conversation start up with people when they say like, you know, the album sales are plummeting, you know, nobody, music's going away, blah, blah, blah. It does feel a little bit like blacksmiths complaining about horseless carriages. Yeah. And look at, you know, it's like the Pharaoh in the story of Joseph in the yeah. Old Testament. Like there was seven years of lean times mm-hmm. and seven years and they stored up the grains. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, I mean, this is the nature of business. Yeah. And it's the people who, like I was talking about before, the people that can self-correct. Mm-hmm. And granted, there are some compromises that then need to be made to do with our privacy and our interactivity mm-hmm. that some artists may not feel comfortable making. And yeah. I, I honor that. Yeah. And, and I think we all have to work out to what level we're comfortable mm-hmm. adapting to new models. But again, this isn't any different to getting married and then your friends are having kids and they can't go out on saturday nights so you got to think of so then you start a games night and then you get babysitters and then Mm -hmm. and then your friends start getting old and they're dying and you're going to funeral i mean this is life (laughs) like things keep changing you know that's true so i think it's like about can we adapt and can we accept and Mm -hmm. that's when you can thrive Mm -hmm. there's an interesting thing about adapting and accepting and i wanted to ask you this i thought about this earlier in the week there many times when you're writing a song and it's you're in the phase of it and you're in in the midst of I don't know what you'd call it, uh, the muse. Um, correcting those things? Sorry. <laughs> correcting that uh, that to kind of fit the form. Like you yeah, were saying, like the yeah, language yeah, yeah, of music yeah. is, is, the, is the delivery system for the idea. But sometimes when the idea comes out and it's, like maybe it's so specific that or it's, it's like, like seven minutes long yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. idiosyncratic to my thing and how can I broaden this up to make it more uh, what kind of conversation do you have yeah. within yourself within that it's interesting I recently had a conversation with a uh, an abbot of a Buddhist monastery mm. about a very similar subject matter which is to do with how do you simplify esoteric concepts mm. for a wider audience yeah and he said he was saying that it's a great skill and that it it's really is like brain surgery. Yeah. Like how to take something and take the essence of it and keep it true, mm-hmm. but make it in a way that's palatable and digestible. Mm-hmm. But he said all this, there's also a caveat in that there are some concepts that cannot be simplified. Yeah. And those concepts you just have to allow people to come to when they're ready. Yeah. So I think the dance you're talking about is a dance mm-hmm. and I don't think there's one answer to it in that we have to continue refining and boiling down and simplifying until we hit a point of natural resistance Mm -hmm. in which if we simplify any more, we're going to lose the essence. Yeah. And at that point, you have to honor the piece. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, I'm making a record. The last record I made was quite abstract and, you know, long pieces and instrumentals and stuff. And the new record I've started writing now, it's got, some songs that are more a few songs that are more pop
pop songs, mm-hmm. you know, traditional pop songs. And once you get into that realm, you know you're dealing with a specific beast. Yeah. And there are some compromises that need to be made. It can't be an eight-minute song. I mean, it's like, and I don't think that is insulting to my muse to say, if we're going to work in this medium, I got to make a few compromises here and there. Yeah. But it's very important to me that within that, it's still carried, carrying energetically the mm-hmm. message that I want it to carry. And if I ever feel that we lose that, then you got to start again. Yeah. It it is true. I guess that I hadn't even thought of that. Most more often than not, uh, for me, it's a creative starting gun, and is mm. and a lot of my songwriting feels like uh, an Oklahoma land grab. Somebody fires a gun, and then I'm just tearing off into the wilderness and trying to grab some flat ground that's got a water source in it. Mm. And uh, and so yeah, I've, I've I've had the ebb and flow of uh, of <laughs> the six seven minute song on my first record that I put out. There was a seven minute mm. song, and. Uh, it said a lot, and it feels it felt good to write it, but it didn't really land because it was seven minutes long. Yeah, I mean, I like, you know, I listen to classical music mm-hmm. and different sacred music and indigenous music. I have no problem with 20-minute songs, 30-minute songs. Mm-hmm. It's just about precision. Yeah. It's about are we, if we're going from A to B, mm-hmm. are we taking a straight line? Yeah. And then if that straight line is 30 minutes, then it's 30 minutes. But if we're winding and taking some detours, then there's room for correction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It uh, with the form of what you were doing with uh, with ayahuasca. Welcome to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you started doing that, I'll actually, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, what brought you to the concept of not just making that record, but ayahuasca itself? Ayahuasca was something I'd heard about for a number of years, and then is that my phone? No, that's mine. That's going okay. Um, yeah, ayahuasca is something I'd heard about for a number of years and then re-encountered it through a friend who'd been working with it. Um, and he'd gone through a lot of changes and he'd stopped drinking and smoking pot and womanizing. And, you mm-hmm. know, I, I've always been the type of person that when I see real change, I'm interested in the source. Yeah. Because it's actually hard to change. It's Truly. the most. It's the most natural thing in the world, in the world we said everything should always be changing. Mm-hmm. But we are stubborn. Oh, yeah. And when you find something that helps accelerate that change, I'm always interested in it because it's powerful. So I began working with that natural medicine. This is always, um, for people that don't know, it's South American medicine, always done in um, a group setting with a trained leader or shaman or supervisor because it puts you in a very vulnerable state. It's not, it's actually a detoxifier. So there's nothing toxic about it. It's a a purgative. But you're very vulnerable, so you need the health and safety of everybody going through. You know, like anything, like if you go to a chiropractor, you need to see someone licensed because they're messing with your spine. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I began working with a particular teacher over the last few years, and at a certain point, it became much like anything else I've ever written music about in that, to some degree, I fell in love. Mm. And I think when you feel love and you feel devotion, you bring what you can bring naturally to that. I mean, I have a friend whose boyfriend is a carpenter and one of the first things he did was he made her a chair hmm. because that's his skills, you know? Yeah. So for me as a musician, it felt very natural to bring music to this experience of ayahuasca that I felt was helping me a lot. Mm-hmm. Did you run into any sort of uh, preconceptions, not preconceptions, but prejudices from other yeah, people, from sure, creative from people? my family. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, from many people. I... I I think in general, 
the conversation about consciousness and spirituality and mod, you know, different models of healing and stuff. There's, there's, people have a lot of preconceptions about some of it is resistance mm-hmm. and some of it is actually bad experiences that they've had because, you know, like with spiritual teachers, I think probably everybody knows someone who has gone kind of up the garden path with yeah. the wrong spiritual teacher. And yeah. they're like, they've got a, you know, kind of, you can't communicate with them. They don't seem grounded. Mm-hmm. They're like, their family's worried about them, <laughs> you know, and I've always believed that the mark of a really true spiritual path is it actually brings people together and brings a family together. And you can tell when there's true spirit mm-hmm. somewhere because people become kinder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's been a lot of preconceptions, but I think that is part of the path and part of not really aspiring to kind of lecture people or use words even to correct somebody if they have a judgment against mm. me, but to just live by example and be a good person. And I think all of that comes out in the wash as you go down the path. Yeah, it is habeas corpus, man. Show us the body. This is, you, you become your own evidence for the actual. Yeah, you have to. Because yeah. there's that, I mean, everyone can talk. You yeah. Know? We live in a very verbal world with a lot of very intelligent people, and yeah. they'll convince you of anything. Mm-hmm. But there's a presence you can feel amongst people that have, you know, a word I love is gnosis. You yeah. Know, which means knowledge that comes from experience, knowledge that comes internally. Mm-hmm. And that is really, I think, what spiritual wisdom should be. It's not a concept someone reads in a book. Yeah. It's something that someone has hard won. Mm-hmm. And they they don't even need to remind themselves of it because it's in their bones. Yeah. And that type of wisdom, it can only be gained through experience. Yeah. And the Bible says that uh, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Mm. It's a very uh, That always floats back to me yeah. over and over again. It's in us. And... It, it's we are constantly doing this compare and contrast through these uh, through these poor tools yeah. as far as like our souls go uh, through our eyes and through our ears you know they they can create beauty and they can do lots of stuff but when you get to the heart of it you're trying to bring something up and seeing if it matches another thing and bringing it up and and seeing if it matches that thing within your soul and when you get close to it that's when you personally I have a weird physiological reaction when I'm writing a song or reading a book or or having a piece of writing or having a conversation that is really getting to the heart of it, my, my pulse quickens and I, I choke up. And it's every time I know that I'm onto something if I'm crying, mm. <laughs> which can make it difficult to write in like train stations mm. in public and that kind of thing, but which is a preconception in and of itself. You know? Well, but I think, you know, this is where I think religion and spirituality is very useful because you realize that, there's a long history of mythology and I'm not someone who takes any of the stories literally. I think all of the historical, the texts, you know, the mystical texts, they're all designed to tell us something about our inner journey and our consciousness. But all of the books and all of the sages and saints and teachers throughout history tell us that the truth is bigger than we can handle. Hmm. They all tell us, whether it's like in the Bhavad Gita, Krishna revealing to Arjuna his true form, which is like the infinite nature of the universe, and Arjuna going, whoa, 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 go back, go back to, <laughs> go back to the Krishna. That was, that was yeah. crazy. You know? <laughs> or, um, you know, all these different types of symbols that you see in all the stories. So, um, I mean, the whole reason why the idea in Christianity is why 
God would send a son and send physical form is so that we can comprehend the lessons because mm-hmm. they're so massive yeah. that in abstract form we can't even comprehend mm-hmm. them. So I think the feeling of being overwhelmed and the feeling of anxiety in a sense that comes up, you know, there's a term I like mystical death, mm-hmm. the psychological death, because there's a feeling when we're reaching the boundaries of the world that we know mm-hmm. and we panic. Yeah. And we get emotional and we're overwhelmed. But that is really a good sign because Mm -hmm. it means we're beginning to just skirt the edges of something uh, bigger than what our machine has been used to handling. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm reading this book called Incognito, basically uh, about neuroscience and the mind and how so much of what we think is our own decisions are autonomic things from, uh, from just evolution growing up with ourselves you know keeping our our line going by by these uh they call them zombie systems so to speak um and in in one of these examples that they were giving just about how the mind works is is that you can't think of certain things you simply can't your brain doesn't allow, allow the concept the concept of infinity you know in an effort to keep you from going insane just it just doesn't it doesn't immediately allow you to do it. And I think that's, you know, obviously spiritual leaders have spent devoted entire lifetimes to sitting down and trying to get past that barrier mm-hmm. of perception and mm-hmm. being able to, to see above it and, and the width and the breadth of existence and the universe alone. Well, this is where I think we get into the real purpose of art. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about, that barrier yeah. between us and the truth it's not meant to be there. Yeah. And I think, again, this is something you can go back to, say, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, they talk about there's a fall. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Kabbalah, they talk about the shattering of the vessels and that their ego, it's like a virus. Yeah. In esoteric Christianity, they talk about the archons, which are basically imitators of divine energy that the idea is that there is a problem. There's a problem that we're actually here to be working on. And what I see artists and spiritual teachers and great therapists and a lot of indigenous cultures forming a network in which we attempt to hack the computer system of consciousness Hmm. and help get the software back to its intended use. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is probably the rarest of rare things. And, and whenever, whenever I talk about it, whenever I like, begin to broach any subject like this, I get incredibly excited and, and in an almost anxious, like longing for a place that I have never been. Well, then we, it's very, you know, we have to be very private about this in a sense, like yeah. in this type of environment, we can talk about it. And, but One of the uh, skills in hacking culture Mm -hmm. or a computer system is learning to become part of it Mm -hmm. and operates like the matrix, right? Trojan horsing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So learning the rules of the system, learning the rules of songwriting, Mm -hmm. learning the rules of business interaction, of negotiation. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all the techniques with which we can get ourselves into the system. And of course, the danger is that we actually forget who we are because yeah. we've spent so much time learning the rules yeah. <laughs> that we forget why we started learning them. But I, I don't, I hope this isn't 
sounding too out there because I'm speaking about something very practical mm-hmm. in that we live in a world in which compassion is not at the epicenter of our civilization. No. And it should be. Mm-hmm. And while we need to make these individual changes, we also need to make entire um, institutional changes. And that involves acquiring power within the world and demonstrating and convincing and, um, you know, subverting in powerful ways. And it goes back to what moved me about Nirvana. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, you know, Bob Dylan and, you know, just great artists to me have always gotten their foot in the door Mm -hmm. and said, wake up. Yeah. Yeah. And they hopefully do it in the most pleasant way possible so that if you imagine how someone wakes you up, if they come into your bedroom and they're like, hey, wake up and yeah. hear you, you're like, ah, get away. Mm-hmm. And even if you do wake up, you're resentful. Mm-hmm. But if someone comes in so sweetly and pats you and says, wake up, you've been asleep. It's mm-hmm. time to wake up. It's a beautiful day. Then maybe you can approach a new consciousness with hope and excitement rather than, you know, resentment. It does seem like that's the role of a lot of artists, for, especially for thinking back on Dylan. You know, the times are changing. Any number of the tunes that he wrote about that sort of thing. And then his own spiritual journey that he went through mm. with, uh, you know, in the 70s with Blood on the Tracks and, and doing those various different things. Being able to, yeah, to to take the eternal, pull it down, and to kind of dust off, you know, the, the stardust a little bit and round off the edges so that it can pass through the very narrow scope of, of uh, pop culture's gaze. So being able to do that is a trick that um, I short-circuit myself with personally by thinking that, no, but it has to be true to form because that I'm going to be selling myself out. And a lot of stuff has opened up just in the last hour of this conversation with the way you're talking for me personally, so thank you for that, is being able to realize that it is a form and that you know, it, you're trying to build a car, don't complain if they want wheels. Yeah, know? exactly. That's a great way to say it. Um, and don't obsess about form. Yeah. I mean, in the same way that in the Vedas and in Buddhist teachers, they say, don't obsess with your form as a human being. Don't obsess with the form of a song. (laughs) It's just another form. It could never be the ultimate. The ultimate is never going to be in a a form. Mm -hmm. It'll always be beyond form. So the energy and the intention, that's the real gift you're giving your audience. Yeah. The form is just the way you wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a specific... Uh, routine for your work that you do? Or is it just sort of uh, when it happens, it happens? It changes, but I work with, I generally work with larger concepts, meaning uh, I have something I want to share and then I'm working towards that expression. So it's unusual these days, especially for me just to write, you know, just on on an off day, just write. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I sort of, I'm working towards different projects and work, and then I sort of schedule it in and I really work. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And what's the one you're working on right now? Just an album. Just a record? Yeah, but it's been an interesting journey for me because the last year of my life has been quite consumed by an interest in uh, working with the dying. Oh. And um, I, so in that study, I became a certified death midwife. Wow. And a hospice volunteer. And there's a lot of ways music informs that process. There's actually a whole study called music thanatology, which is music for the dying. Wow. And a lot of the, it's a little early days for me to say how exactly this is going to inform 
the music I'm making, but it, it's been a very profound inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, death midwifery. Yeah. Uh, what? How is that different from hospice care? Um, because hospice care may have an emotional element or a psychological element to it, but the the basics of hospice is that they're catering to your comfort. Mm-hmm. And pain management and being able to die at home, hopefully, which is mm-hmm. what supposedly 91% of Americans want and 14% actually get to do. Wow. Um, something like that. I might have, you know, slightly yeah. fudged his numbers, but in, it's around in, that. It's yeah. in that ballpark. It's mm-hmm. pretty extraordinary um, discrepancy. Um, but so hospice care is, you know, it, there's a lot of... Um, it's tied in with nursing. It's tied yeah. in, there's a lot of elements to do with hospice. So as a hospice volunteer, you might be going and you might be going and having a heart to heart conversation. You might also be going to get groceries mm. or, you know, there's a lot of elements of hospice. Death midwifery is very specifically about conscious dying mm. and about the supporting the emotional and spiritual and psychological journey towards death. Mm-hmm. So, it's a bit different. Yeah. They, they obviously they're involved with each other, but it's a bit different. Yeah. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I was reading a national geographic and this image has haunted me ever since in a good way. Um, in a kind of psycho spiritual way. Um, it was this woman who was dying and she was curled up in the fetal position on a bed. And it was, uh, I think it was in West Virginia or something, but she was wearing just these everyday, um, you know, Costco brand sweats and a woman was next to her playing a harp. And that's a music thanatologist. Yeah. There's a woman, I, I, I forgot her exact name. I think it's like Teresa Schneider Schocker or something like that. Um, but she created music thanatology and it's all done on the harp. Oh, it might've been her. Yeah. Or yeah. someone of her people. But, mm. the, but this is, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Her music's really beautiful and it's really interesting. The harp thing There's this image because we all associate harps with angels mm-hmm. and stuff. So you can imagine it mm-hmm. qu- must be quite a powerful thing to have someone in, on a harp yeah. in your room at the hospital. <laughs> <and you're, laughs> but, but it's very soothing. It's very archetypal in that mm-hmm. sense. I think it, the symbol of the harp, we automatically, we don't think of an abrasive sound. Mm-mm. We think of something soothing and angelic and supportive. And I think once you get into that state of consciousness as you're dying, communicating in archetypal symbols is very important mm. and uh, can be really supportive. Oh, that's fascinating, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming in, man. It's been an excellent Thanks for having me. Yeah. And congrats on putting this together. <laughs> it's going so well. Oh, thank you, man. So, are you guys excited about life? Are you excited about the possibilities? Because I am. After I had that conversation, I had the best, trippiest day. Just living up in my head, and not the normal living up in my head, which involves me burning myself in effigy, but thinking about extemporaneous things. I wish I had a conversation like that a week. I don't think I could handle more than that. But once a week, that would get me, uh, that would get me through a lot. Continue to spread the word about Shark Brain. I appreciate those of you who write in. It has been such a great shot in the arm to make me feel like I'm moving in the right direction for a lot of these things. 
Tuesday, November 26th, again at the Hotel Cafe. Ticket links are up at hotelcafe.com. Also, we'll be playing the first night of the Ho Hotel Benefit uh, on, I believe, uh, near the 14th or 15th. So look that up at hotelcafe.com. That'll be the last show of the year. I'm going to be getting into the studio and writing a new acoustic record for everybody. So um, hold my feet to the fire on that. Uh, I'm going to get that done, and I'm going to stop procrastinating. Love your friends, and be well. The 